0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida.
1: (laughs) Hello, we're back. Now, I thought Rudy was going to be, you know, a one-off, one-episode deal when we first started this.
0: And uh, yeah, it's turning into maybe a five-part extravaganza (laughs) because there's just so much event in this man's life. Well, there's not, and not just that even, but also how he
1: kind of fits in with the zeitgeist of the time. And he seems to just like have some tripwires that just explode certain issues in the culture. Uh, Issues of uh, women's sexuality, women's power to choose. Consumer uh, uh, power as well. Yeah, the consumer power of women, issues of masculinity and what that means, and I don't know what you want to call it, but the fundamental delicacy and vulnerability of the masculine identity, fragility. Yeah, 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 fragility of the masculine identity, and I don't mean that in I don't mean that in a disparaging way toward men. I just mean that the way the culture is set up, that men's identity as being masculine, whatever that may mean, is constantly under assault and constantly being kind of like boxed in to the really narrow definition and uh, and that that really gets to be enforced by other men.
0: Yeah, and I mean, especially in America, I think we yeah, too looking yeah. at this, you see a difference between like European masculinity and American masculinity. Yeah,
1: and it's interesting because European masculinity can be even more macho than men over here. Right, but there's a different definition of what kinds of attributes are allowed to be in that box. So that will be coming up very, very largely, and we'll have you know a lot to say about that because it's really, really interesting how he fits into it. Totally. Okay, so I think where we left off last time is we got our our, beloved Rudy through 1919, 1920, and into 1921. We talked about his first marriage and how that that thing fell apart. And I believe we did also talk about that he's met Natasha Rambova, his second wife. Is that
0: correct? That's exactly where we ended, yeah. Okay. He was working on um, some films, and he met Natasha Rambova through the circle of... Uh, Nazimova, the like larger-than-life Russian actress and lesbian who kind of took Rudy under her wing and then had him co-star with her in a film, in is which he outshone she... her. And yeah. then would, would she then suppressed.
1: Which she cut, off a, cut out all his big bits. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she, she just couldn't go there, man. <laughs> and as we keep saying, but it can't be said too much, his relationship, again, is that through life, through his life of older women mentoring him, loving him in a a non-sexual way. But there's just something about his, because of his relationship with his mother, his true appreciation, and you can feel when somebody really just really appreciates you and really likes you and cares about you. And, And he just reaped the rewards of that throughout his life. And we talked about June Mathis, a very, very important person who got him his job in Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And I really hope that since the last time we talked, you guys have gone to YouTube and looked up that, if not watched the film, at least looked up that dance sequence. Because
0: it will tell dance you... Dance sequence from Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Yes.
1: You, it will inform you so much about who he was on the screen and what a great artist he was. So, And why women loved him so much. Yeah. <laughs> So essentially after he had hit the stardom with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, he wanted more money. He was, only, he was only making $100 a week, which in those days was, was you know, not bad. I mean, you could, could kind of live on that. Although living the lifestyle of in, in California, yeah. you know, that wasn't enough. And all he wanted was a raise to $500 a week after this big stardom. And Rex Ingram, who directed the film, he was making $1,000 a week just for comparison's sake and he felt like because rudy was getting all the attention obviously he was jealous he was just a flash in the pan he wasn't he he wasn't uh, really important to the success of the movie or whatever his point was is that this guy was really a nobody and not worth it and he refused to give him a raise and and this wasn't like they were under contract In those days, he didn't have like that seven year contract that they all later signed, but Rudy stayed there and did another movie with Ingrid, The Conquering Power, which we talked about last time. So go back to that one if you want the details on that film. But essentially, it really put Rudy's back up because he's he, it really was him who who pushed that movie over into making millions of dollars. Yeah,
0: 100%.
1: Yeah. By, and by today's standards, it was making tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, by our standard, if you adjust for inflation. And if you think about it, Nazimova, Mary Pickford, I mean, okay, these are top... Mary Pickford was a top star. Nazimova, her movies didn't make any money,
0: but she was getting $10,000 a week. That's nuts. I had no idea she made that much. Yeah, can you imagine if you adjust for inflation how much money that is? Was she just good at negotiating
1: apparently well they wanted her to come over because she was a huge star in europe on the stage and that was like they got sarah bernhardt i don't know if you know that name but that's that was always the byword for great acting in the theater sarah bernhardt and so they would get these really really famous stars from the theater to come over but they'd have to pay them a lot of money because the flickers were like you know what's that little old trashy throwaway things It, it, it hadn't really risen to the level of art it was becoming so right now, right in Rudy's career. And uh, so she was able to get a lot of money for it because they wanted this name. So he wasn't asking for $10,000 a week. You know, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, I mean, they all had track records. So that that's certainly a point that could be made. He has one big, gigantic hit. But all he wanted was $500 a
0: week. Right. It seems pretty reasonable by comparison. Yeah, it
1: kind of does, you know. It kind of could be the market. But anyway, um, he became just extremely angry about that, because it really was saying, you're not worth it, you're not good enough. And Ingram, I mean, they are just at loggerheads, which must have been a nightmare making Concord Power. I don't know, did I mention last time that uh, Rudy wanted to challenge Ingram to a duel? I don't think so. Because apparently Ingram was criticizing him in front of the whole cast, like berating, basically being abusive, berating him and saying how crappy he was and what a terrible job he was doing. It was all wrong. And a jerk. It was such a jerk. And like I said last time, if you watch the film, you can see that Rudy's the best thing in it. I mean, he really does do a very good job. But uh, at some point, at one point, he became so angry. He was, he, he was like, you just see like He's, he wants to go out there and... Challenge him to a duel, and his friends are holding him back. Don't do it, Rudy, because he, he would have done it. You know, of course. And of course, it would have been uh, illegal. And he mentioned this later when he challenged somebody else to a duel that guns or swords or anything would be illegal, but he would meet him in the boxing ring.
0: Right. You know,
1: so uh, he he would have done it. I'm sure. Ultimately, after that, what happened is he decided that he'd had enough. And uh, he uh, jumped over from Metro, which is where the studio was at for four horsemen, to famous players Lasky, Lasky. And he got his 500 bucks a week. The thing was, when you read the uh, historical record and the documents from the time, they were willing to pay him so much more yeah they would have paid him like a thousand
0: dollars a week oh wow whatever you know <laughs> he really lowballed it yeah he might
1: even have been able to get two thousand dollars i mean he he really could have but uh you know he, he was terrible at negotiating and i think that he had managers who were terrible at negotiating because i think they may even have negotiated the contract for him and it was a two year contract now this is where we get into the issues where the studio at their sole discretion could renew for another two years um, and they what they did is when they got Rudy in there they're all like oh my boy you're so great you know oh, we're a family we take care of our guys and when you start making more money for us we give you more money that's how it works well did they put it in writing no of
0: course not it was not in the contract and that's so dirty they could just cheat like they can build someone into this amazing star that makes so much money and then just renew it again for another 500 a week mm-hmm. or, that's exactly what yeah. the plan was
1: yeah, so they, they basically said, well, you'll get control over your pictures and you'll get raises, you know, as you as warranted, but it wasn't in the contract. So he was stuck there, uh, but he was so angry, and that's Rudy, and impulsive. He just, he signed the contract. The other thing that probably made him willing to do it, and I think this is why they hired, they did it, they hired June Mathis to come over, and that probably made Rudy think, oh, okay, well, I'll be taken care of. But she didn't work on his next picture, which was the sheik.
0: Finally, we get to the Sheik. Ah, oh,
1: so, so important. Okay. So, we are now in, uh, still in 1921,
0: and, he, I mean, they did so many movies in those days. This time, we've got the Sheik. And it's his, his most iconic role. It's what gave people an impression that he always played an exotic lover and sort of a wild you know, man, which really isn't true because he played a lot of European and uh, American. American characters. Um, and so this, the I think the fascinating thing about The Sheik, this is really where we get to talk, get into the conversation about masculinity, sexual politics, things like that. So The Sheik is set in the Middle East. Uh, we don't know exactly where. And it's based off of a book, from the time that was very popular, right? Yeah, it was very popular. Bestseller,
1: written by a woman. And in the book, um, there is a feisty, shingle-haired heroine who... She's a lady somebody. She's obviously nobility. And she goes out, and she's going to go in the desert. Kind of like, I think they're patterning her after someone like a Gert- Gertrude Bell. Uh, Gertrude Bell was an English explorer, and I don't know what you call it, but she was a real student of Middle East... Kind the of Ar- an anthropologist yeah the Arabic culture uh, she loved the Arabic culture she loved those countries she loved those people in fact a lot of people sneer at her and say oh they divided up the Middle East after World War one and it's just this they just had this woman draw boundaries in the sand. Well, in fact, she was a very, very big proponent of the Saud family, who still rule Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia didn't exist until after World War One, as as an individual country. And she was, I think, she was probably pretty much in love with this, with the prince. Mm-hmm. And anyway, but she was very much their proponent, and so she had a lot to, of influence uh, to do with uh, with the establishment of that country, and a lot of other things that happened in policy. But she knew, she knew the country so it wasn't like she was some dilettante just coming probably because she's a woman it's like oh kind of like she fluttered in and you know was was frivolous about it or whatever uh, which was not fair but she you know she but she was one of those people who would travel across the desert with camels and they'd set up the tent and she would have dinner on china <laughs> Right. With, with, with uh, uh, white tablecloths, and she'd dress for dinner in the middle of the desert. So, like, when you see that image, Gertrude Bell is one of those people. A lot of men did that, too. And she knew Lawrence of Arabia, and they didn't like each other very much. And, oh, interesting. Well, he was kind of misogynist, for yeah. one thing, you know. Anyway, I think that the, the woman in this, played by Agnes Ayres, is kind of meant to be like a Gertrude Bell kind of character. The thing is, is that she's, I don't know, I'll just say right off that bat, Agnes Ayers is just like a wet dish towel for me. She she just, to me, has... I mean, the character is not that interesting, but she just really doesn't have much oomph at all on the screen. Rudy just takes the cake. Yeah. So essentially, basically what it is, is she goes out in the desert, he sees her,
0: he thinks she's hot. His nostrils flare, his eyebrows twizzle. Uh, (laughs) And basically
1: he he grabs her and i think he's rescuing her from something
0: yeah i think um yeah he's rescuing her and i think and there's like bad bandits and then so he kidnaps her but he's a good guy because well, he's saving her from the bandits well so he doesn't kidnap her he saves her and then he kidnaps her right he said well he
1: basically he saves her and he uh, takes her to his tent and then he kind of doesn't let her go right is what it is
0: trigger warning discussion of rape um and sexual assault not graphic or anything but that's coming up and only in a movie not in real life
1: so uh so essentially yeah so he takes her and then uh he's hot for her and she's like "Ooh, you're you're an arab Ugh. you know and uh then ultimately he wins her over and they uh
0: consummate okay
1: we're gonna spoil this hundred year old movie uh and they they, con- they well they don't consummate yet he fights and he ends up being, laying on a chaise and he's like really at death's door, right? And she's like nursing him. And it comes out that in fact, he's half Spanish, half French, and he was just adopted by the Arab. So then they can get married and <laughs> yeah. <he> have sex.
0: <laughs> Which is so silly. Does that, that's not the case in the book. In the that yeah, is. Oh, it is, Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. so funny. It is,
1: but in the book, the difference, the big difference is in the book, he rapes her and she ends up falling in love with him anyway. And, you know, I don't know what to say about that. But in the movie, they choose not to do that. Right. He sees her praying when he comes in to rape her, and his heart is softened, and he and he leaves. Right. Which I, is all the good... It's better. In yeah. my mind. But in those days, that wasn't a real man. And this is where we start the, the triggering of men had already started to be jealous of rudy because the women were just like god he's so hot god he's what a great lover oh he's so you know he dances he kisses hands he's like sensitive and sensual and that was exactly the opposite of what men were allowed to be even if they were that way you had to to squash it you couldn't be that way uh, because you were a, a sissy you know, you, were, you weren't a real man. You weren't a man who could impregnate a woman, apparently,
0: or something something like that. I don't know. So he, he started getting a lot of criticism and flack from the media and people because the rape scene was not included in the film. Right, so like it's his fault, Right. first of all. Uh, and, and of course it was a, in our minds a good decision but
1: in american society apparently it wasn't yeah so he got a lot of flack that he was a, a sissy because in the movie he didn't rape a woman right and it's so interesting because rudy you know he said that the people had trouble separating this is actually a quote people have trouble separating the person from the actor because the medium is so new and suspension of disbelief so total So people so, you know, they really thought that they were seeing that person on the screen. I mean, people still have trouble with that. That's true. I mean, you know, but at least not as much as they did back then. So really they began uh, not only just being jealous and saying, oh, he's a foreigner and oh, he's a dancer and oh, he was a gigolo. Now they're saying, oh, he isn't a man. Right. And boy, you want to say the thing that's going to set Rudy off. That's the one of anything. He's very, very thin-skinned and very, very touchy about that. And sometimes his, I think his responses were not calibrated to serve him best when he's being punctured like that. At the time, in order to kind of bolster his image, he would say, oh, men must dominate women, all this stuff. And then later he backs off and he didn't want to be identified as the sheik anymore because of the, f- the flack he got about this. But let me read you This thing that was written about him at the time. A male journalist wrote this. And it was called The Song of Hate. (laughs) (laughs) That's the title of the column or whatever? That's (laughs) the the title of the piece that was written. (laughs) I hate Valentino. All men hate Valentino. I hate his oriental optics. I hate his classic nose. I hate his Roman face. I hate his smile. I hate his patent leather hair. I hate his Svengali glare. I hate him because he dances too well. I hate him because he is a slicker. I hate him because he is the great lover of the screen. I hate him because he's an embezzler of hearts. I hate him because he's too apt in the art of osculation. Because he's too good looking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. All right. Well,
1: I And mean, I think, that kind, of, I think that kind of says it. It's very jealous, very jealous, jealousy based. Yeah. Apparently, you know, women would go to this film and they, just flocking to it and, and seeing it multiple times, multiple times in in one day. Yeah. You know? And men were, they said, women, men were like walking out of
0: the theater. A lot of the men would just get up and walk out. They were so disgusted. It was held over for years in some yeah. theaters. It's really strange. So there's sort of a parallel I see here between the reception of uh, The Chic and the reception of, for example, Twilight. Because there's been mm, some... Mm. There's been some good sort of analysis and criticism around the fact that, you know, Twilight as a piece of media, it's not offensive. It's just not very good. Um, and it's pretty cliched and trope-filled. But the hate and virulence that mm-hmm. tw- Twilight and the fans of Twilight and the author of Twilight drew to them, uh, there's been a lot of good analysis about how that was really kind of misogynist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, based yeah like a cultural outlet for some of that misogyny i see that here as well
1: yeah it's like if, if something is created from the female gaze even though this was created by men the story was by a woman and it has a, a kind of a rape fantasy to it totally. that is that is i don't know kind of exciting and interesting and it can be problematic for some i mean it depends on where you, yeah. how you come at it it can be problematic or it can be very titillating
0: or both yeah, and I would say that this film is definitely uh, majorly influential and super imitated. Af- oh, afterwards, like, like in, yeah, they, in they... the trope of the being kidnapped by the sort of hot and wild man who ends up being a tender lover and that sort of thing. Right,
1: right, exactly. So you can have both the the uh, the the the. the frisson of violence and, the and thrill and, and the... the... You, know, you can feel the strength of those guns. Man, he's got some really nice That's arms. That's true. <laughs> he really has got nice arms. And, you know, just like like taking you and and yeah. and, uh, and then at the same time
0: knowing that this person is actually, at bottom, safe. And actually sees you and engages with you as a person and, right. and an equal and stuff. Right, exactly. It's fantasy, yeah. Right, exactly. We <laughs> just got to talk about this one great scene. And the thing is, is they took the rape out
1: because to, to appease the censors, because you just couldn't have it in in the in the films of those times, even though this was pre code. I mean, and have them be sensi- uh, sympathetic characters. Um, so it, essentially, but there was one scene where where he does when he first rescues her and puts her on the saddle. So she's sitting side saddle in front of him on the horse, and the horse is galloping, and we've all seen but um but um but um the horse galloping, and they're going up and down. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my
0: god, that is so... Do we need just to... Do we need to spell it out? No, I don't think so. But I will say that I think we've mentioned the Ken Russell biopic oh, yeah, yeah. of Parts of Rudy's Life, starring Rudolf Nureyev, and um, there's a scene in it in which he has sex with a woman, and she, in her head, is imagining. She's in that scene. Yeah, she's in that scene in the chic while she's on top of him, and so. And I think that was very much, yeah, something widely fantasized about. It was,
1: it was a great little commentary on that because. And oh, by the way, if you don't know who Rudolf Nureyev is, he was a very great ballet dancer who um, defected to the U.S. in I think 1963, and became and had a long career, and then he ran the Paris Opera for a while, and then then he's passed away several, like in the 80s, I think. Uh, anyway, he was a very gorgeous, uh, beautiful, physically beautiful man. You know, really really good to play the dancing part of Rudy. And we do recommend that film. Although, do know, it, they did a lot of research, and there's a lot of good stuff in there, but it's all, always, always told through kind of a surreal lens, and also through a, a really particular interpretation. So that film really caused a furor across the nation. And, it, of course, Rudy was then in the in the center of it. And that was really, really hard for him because he's a very sensitive guy, and he really was an artist, and now he's become the symbol of something that he didn't want. I mean his his co-stars, like Agnes Ayers and um, May Murray and these women who worked with him who he didn't have affairs with. He wasn't a guy who went around and was trolling women and trying to have affairs with a bunch of them. He was looking for a relationship, as we talked about before. And they all said, he's just a mama's boy or he's just like a brother. He's just a playful, scampish monkey, you know, who's always like playing tricks and laughing and, you know, being a good, and being a good friend. And that was the kind of guy he was. And then on the other hand, he's like, got this image in the country at large, which was, was pretty hard because it didn't match who he was. Oh I, oh, I do have one more thing to say. When people want to make silent movies look ridiculous, they will often choose a particular shot from The Sheik where he, Rudy has his arms folded and he's glaring at the woman is she's kind of lying down on the chaise in a frightened stance and his eyes are kind of popping and in the film he does do a lot of uh, like eye widening and nostril flaring and, and big point pointing and big gestures and you never see you don't see that of him in other films he will occasionally revert to a sort of standard repertoire of gesture in other films and occasionally his eyes will flare but not like this and the reason was he was directed to do that specifically by the director who, the director's vision for this was that it was a romp, that it was like a comic book or a big fantasy, like a, they didn't have them then yet, but a Harlequin romance fantasy. And so that was what the director was trying to get at, is an unreality and an that it was overblown, that it was supposed to be that way, so it
0: had an edge of irony or the ridiculous to it that we're not going to pick up on today. Yeah, common interpretations or casual viewings might look at that and say, like, oh, I mean, the movie is a bit Orientalist, but, uh, Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's so Orientalist that he's acting like, you know, they're making him act like a heathen and a savage and stuff, and so there's more to it than it just being a racist sort of characterization. It was supposed to be overblown in that way. Well,
1: especially since he isn't Arab anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, you know... He's actually European in in the movie. Yeah, um, they just don't reveal it till later. So you could have that impression up until that point. Yeah, and it's also interesting is that his his face is quite pale, but if you look at his hands, they don't make up his hands. Which actually, if you look at silent films, this is pretty general. If you look at Douglas Fairbanks or Buster Keaton films, I've seen this the the faces are pale, and you look at their hands; they almost look black because they're they're very tanned, because they spent a lot of time outside in California. Um, so you. But it is kind of interesting to see how the impact it has on this film. I don't think they did this on purpose, but who knows. But the fact is, is that they couldn't have him be non-white because of the miscegenation laws. And also they wanted to sell their films in the South. And that really drove a lot of the failure to include people of color in films, not only just the inherent racism, but... A bigger issue was the fact that in the south they would not play films where they couldn't like actually edit out the black people Mm. Uh, you know unless they were just in the background which was okay or they were servants which is okay but um yeah so uh, so it was really very market driven as you know and Mm -hmm. as opposed to just sort of a cultural
0: milieu yeah
1: Yeah. because a lot of the direct if you notice uh I'm, i'm getting digressing here a little bit but if you if you really watch and i do Films in the sound era and in the silent era, a lot of those directors and writers and actors were real artists and they really appreciated other people who were talented. And you could see them trying to sneak people of color in in some way, like have them like passing. And like there was this one episode of Perry Mason where the guy was uh, on trial and he's kind of like that. little bit kinky hair, but he looks kind of Italian, whatever it looked like he was a black man. Mm -hmm. But in black and white, he kind of passed. And so they just snuck him in there. And his family, you know, was clearly not a black family, Uh, his wife and children, who I mean, as they were playing a TV show. So you see things like that where they're saying, I'm trying to make an opportunity, I'm trying to sneak you in to give you some work, give you a chance, but it could never be fully expressed. Because of the way the culture, uh, the market in the South in particular was working. Hmm. So anyway, that was why uh, they would keep the face very light. But the hands were really dark. So when he's touching her or whatever, you can see this very dark hand. Which kind of like helps play into the fact of we're trying to get to something here. We're trying to express something about this
0: relationship or about what what relationship could exist. It's cross-cultural if not cross-racial yeah the diegetic text of the movie yeah yeah and i think that's kind of what i mean when i talk about the orientalism of it is mm-hmm. that there's a sort of duality that exists wherein if you choose to forgo the fact that they had to insert this line about yeah. him being european that it could just be a cross-racial relationship or yeah whatever. exactly yeah.
1: exactly and and since that's a throwaway so it's so you, you've had that whole dynamic throughout the movie and then they just kind of like
0: stick this thing in the end you could kind of ignore it if you want to right you know i think a lot of women would have been attracted to the cross oh, totally racial relationship yeah totally well mostly
1: cross-racial because he's so fucking handsome
0: yeah and, <laughs> and he happens
1: to be dark that too you know and and apparently he had to stay out of the sun he was not allowed to go in the sun at all he said because he became so dark when you got so dark so easily because of his very olive skin um so he had to, he had to really stay out of the sun <laughs> when he did these roles and I thought that that was pretty interesting, too, because Valentino kind of thought that maybe somewhere in the background, like his grandmother or somebody, had a relationship maybe with an Arab guy hmm. or somebody like this, somebody like this, somebody of dark skin. And that that's because he's the only one in his family who is that dark. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it, it's very interesting. And so he embraced it, and he kind of thought that that might be the case. But uh, the fact is, is that it's thrilling because he is dark, he is handsome, he is sexy, and okay. He can be an Arab, I don't care, Yeah, because <laughs> he's, he's hot, you know. But I thought that that was really important to say because they began to, in the newspapers, drawing racist, I mean, really racist cartoons featuring mm-hmm. Valentino.
0: Like... Like Arab racist or Italian racist? No, like Arab racist. Like non-white racist, whatever <laughs> yeah. that is, yeah. That's so interesting in, from a anthropological lens, Isn't I it? guess. Isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, this whole
1: thing, for the rest of his career, didn't matter, he was going to be criticized every moment for not being masculine enough, for not being a man. Now, one could say that, that there might have been some people thinking, oh, well, that means he's gay. I don't interpret their taunts that way. I don't think that that really ever came up that he wasn't, because he was such a ladies man and the women did love him and he was married and all these things. And there was no hint of behavior that showed that he might not be heterosexual. Saying that somebody was a sissy and not manly didn't always equate to sexual preference.
0: No, and, but I do think that there was some like homosexual um, taunts hidden in there but it was that's more to reinforce the right you know your masculinity isn't
1: well it's sort real. of like what can we you know okay let's throw racism let's throw we don't like you know we're jealous yeah. and we don't like this guy let it's anything that could stick they would throw yeah uh but uh, in the second uh, son of the sheik which is a sequel it's just done of uh 4 years later in 1925 he plays himself again as an older man and his own son which, honestly, they do a great job of. They really do a great job. We'll talk about that later. But uh, the, the point is, is that that rape scene...
0: Yeah, the fact that it was eliminated from the first movie and then he got so much flack for it and so much criticism for it and that it, it reflected on him. his He, again, yeah, he would have a very strong reaction to that. And so in this case, his reaction was to say, well, we're going to put a rape scene in the, in the Son of the Sheik. Which is funny because there isn't a rape scene, really. It's just you see him going into her room and
1: then it cuts to black. Yeah. I and mean, that's all you see.
0: Yeah. But the implication was enough, I guess. Um, it was good enough, that apparently. So before we move
1: on to the rest of his career, because uh, we've got a bunch more movies coming up that we can talk about, and I really want to go back because this is the period in 21 and going into 22 when his personal life takes a shift. So we talk about how he had met rambova natasha rambova and how she uh, uh became part of his life she was a great designer she actually designed that chic costume the first one mm. and uh they ended up uh, moving in together in 1921 very, during this year very soon after they met really bear in mind he's still married yeah to gene knacker right exactly but she's not interested in him. and they apparently had like sex all the time they lived out in the desert and this guy he was sleeping on the couch i guess it was a one bedroom house so he was like sleeping on the couch and they had the bedroom and you know they decorated it all fancy like painting things lacquer and and he was like mr handyman helping her paint tables and, and doing carpentry and stuff like that which you wouldn't think and and they had a you know really a big honeymoon period this is like Really a like a wonderful honeymoon period, really, for them, even though they didn't have a lot of money so apparently, the friend relates this story long after he he had died, where there was always a lot of noise coming from the bedroom apparently. <laughs> and one night, like late night, Rudy comes running out, still in an erect position, <laughs> frantic because natasha. Went unconscious. She, she lost, passed her. out. She passed out, and he thought he had killed her.
0: <laughs> and so he was like yelling for help. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the guy runs in, and she was fine. They, <laughs> they were just drinking a lot or something. Was something
1: yeah. about why she passed out, I don't know, but she did.
0: <laughs>
1: so this is kind of the tempestuous relationship they had. But they actually it sounds like they, they must have had a great a great relationship. But she said uh, one point about uh, himself as a lover. She's uh, quoted, quoted in a magazine where she said, With American men, lovemaking is merely an annoying preliminary. With a Latin, it is like the obligato of a delicate music motif.
0: <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> well, you know, there's fuel for the fire right there for the controversy of... Uh... <laughs> American men versus women, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So uh,
1: essentially, um, while they while they were getting together, uh, this was again, as I've said before, the rise of his fame. And just to give it a little bit of perspective, that the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse made about hundred and forty five million dollars in today's money. So that's like a, that's a blockbuster, especially because it couldn't have been that expensive. No, those kind of movies they made, you know, five hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars. And it it made like nine to uh, ten times what it cost. So yeah, huge amount of money. So uh, in order to boost his profile, he was all for touting his movies and so forth. So he went out to all the openings and he went to press conferences and just everything. Receptions and of course a lot of the reporters who came are women reporters (laughs) and so he really knew how to work that so he would like go in the morning and they'd have a a meeting and he'd make omelets for everybody (laughs) and and one woman reporter wrote his bright spats and his slick hair and his cane and his lemon yellow gloves
0: sounds charming it was a little
1: poem that she wrote (laughs) and uh so he did everything that he could and While he's making all these other movies, making the chic, even though he'd gotten somewhat of a raise in pay, they still were kind of hard up for money because he's always in debt. So he's always paying back debts that he owed from buying clothes and trying to live and, you know, his lifestyle. He and Natasha and the friend, what they did is now that he was popular, they got a whole bunch of prints. He got his portrait done, looking all beautiful and everything, and they'd get a whole bunch of prints. And then the mail would come in, and he'd bring the mail home, and he'd just thousands of letters. And they'd open all the letters requesting his autograph, and they had a stamp. They would send it a postcard back. Say, please send twenty-five cents. I'll be happy to send you a photograph. And then they would stamp all these photographs, and they'd get twenty-five <laughs> cents, and they'd send them out. And you know, so that was pretty cheap. They probably doubled their money or whatever on yeah. these. So nice. that was one. That was one way they made money. And then uh, another way they kind of stretched their dollar is Natasha had a car. And so they would drive through the desert really slow, and Rudy would sit on the hood in front with his rifle, and he would shoot game. <laughs> they would take it home.
0: That sounds fun. Yeah, I think it
1: probably would. They probably didn't just do it because they needed the the meat. Yeah. They probably did it because it was fun, too. And so they did that kind of stuff, and, and they talked about their futures, and you can see they were probably planning their lives and what they would do. And one of the things they wanted to do is, they actually did really love animals, and they wanted to start a zoo. <laughs> and in those days, of course, the sense of what animals needed is a little bit different. But anyway, you want to start a zoo. So they ended up getting, like, a monkey. And birds, and they get oh, all these wow. animals, and they ended up getting a, a lion cub named Zella. and Zella just loved Rudy. He, he really did have way with animals, and Zella would follow him around like a kitten and you know, just sit on his lap and you know just just Rudy was her guy. And one day they Zella was outside, and they hear this noise at night, not a good noise. And apparently Zella bit some guy. And it turned out he was a detective that Gene Acker had hired to spy on Rudy to get evidence (laughs) that he was sleeping with somebody else so she could divorce him and get a lot of money. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because there was an element of a fault. So, like, if you did something, like, had an affair, then you would have to pay more money than you would if you didn't. Right. You know, then just like what maybe if the person needed some support or you were just dividing the property, you'd have to pay extra for like punitive damages. Wow. (laughs) Which is so so Zella attacked the guy and (laughs) and bit him on the leg. Good girl, (laughs) (laughs) Zella So um, Where did they keep all these
0: animals? Just, like, on their ground?
1: Yeah, because they were in the desert, so uh-huh. they probably could fence the area off. They weren't, like they weren't like, in a neighborhood. They were kind of out.
0: Interesting. Because,
1: remember, Los Angeles was not built up at all this right. time. So. so I think that that's what they did. I do want to say that uh, Natasha was a big advisor of his on his art, his acting, uh, everything. And she introduced him to, like, a lot of uh, writers and artists and so forth that influenced him. And she was appalled when she found that he had first of all jumped over to Famous Players Lasky which was not known for like art pictures or high-class pictures and that he only took $500 and so was their friend who was living with them and his other friends they were all like aghast that he did this because it was stupid and everybody could see that it was a stupid move and in fact they were, they were right, because Famous Players Lasky, he wanted to make art. He wanted to feel like he was doing something worthwhile and beautiful. And Famous Players Lasky was about money. They were like the low-rent, you know, kind of Roger Cormans of the period, if you will. And, in fact, uh, Jesse Lasky, who ran the studio, he said, I was churning out a continuous flow of pictures like a frozen custard machine. <laughs> That's how he saw
0: it. He cranking them out. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. So, um, anyway, I, I should say that... Um, just to finish up the chic. He did really like working on the chic even though later on he got all this backlash which made him kind of want to distance himself. He had a great time. He loved riding horses. He loved the physical work. He was really good at riding horses. And the director, George Melford, was afraid when he first got this guy coming on because, oh, my God, you know.
0: He's a diva
1: or... Yeah, who is he? Yeah. Doesn't know, you know. And when he saw how well he could ride and what a nice guy was, they got along really well. And also Melford listened to him and let him have some input into things. And he didn't, he didn't berate him. He praised him. Yeah. And so really loved that. And he called him Uncle George. Aww. And they got along really, really well. And he, uh, uh, interesting aside here, uh, the actress Loretta Young, who, she became a very famous actress later.
0: I've heard the name before. Yeah. for sure. Uh,
1: she was eight years old at the time, and she was in uh, just one of the. She played one of the uh, street children, one of the street urchins running around. And she remembered that Rudy was really nice to the kids and everything, and and he put her up on his horse and led the horse around and let her ride on it a little bit and everything. Yeah. So he was very sweet. and He loved children. In 1922, Rudy finally decided that he wanted to get a divorce. That was the final straw. Jean wouldn't spend Christmas with him. They're having all this trouble and. Now now he's found another woman who just really, they're getting along really well. They're really driving on all levels and so forth. So uh, they go to Reno for the divorce. Unfortunately, he even said this later, he should have had it annulled. Now he's a big star, but he didn't know. He didn't know he was going to be a big star, and he was trying to avoid the publicity of bringing up this gigolo stuff again and the DeSaul's murder. And unfortunately, now he's a big star. It comes up. It comes up big time. And Gene Acker was trying to claim that, that he deserted her and that he was cruel to her.
0: And uh, That's a lie. And when,
1: I know, it's totally a lie. And in fact, when they got into court, she didn't even know his birthday, when his birthday was. And of course, he knew what hers was. He knew everything about her. She didn't even know what his birthday was. And then she said that she was unable to work. She, went, she, went, she was ill and she was unable to work, so she needed to get alimony and have all her medical bills paid and oh yeah, you know, so she's really trying to milk it for as much as she could get in fact what she really wanted was separate maintenance so what she was trying to do is she was trying to prevent the divorce that they would stay married and she would have separate maintenance which means but well, a he couldn't marry again and b she her income would rise with his income i mean you could go back for more alimony i guess in, in those days if somebody's income went way up but anyway uh, the judge really, good for the judge, the judge did not buy this. She did uh, get alimony, uh, like $185 a month or something. Anyway, he had to pay that forever until she got married again, which she never did. And uh, she also sued him for the right to retain the name Mrs. Rudolph Valentino. No.
0: What? I... This we mentioned in the last episode that they ultimately kind of reconciled and ended up having a friendly relationship, which is a testament to Rudy because this is really, and this is not all she did. Shady there, there stuff. will be more coming later. Yeah, it is. It
1: totally is because what she wanted to do is she wanted to uh, be in live be in off films. of the, sound yeah. of the
0: land. Yeah. Well, she
1: wanted to yeah and be in films and be Mrs. Rudolph Valentino. She would get jobs. So what happened was she didn't get that. That's good. But. In California, at that time, once the, the divorce decree was issued, you weren't divorced yet. You had a, a year until it was final. I don't get that law, but, you know, I guess because they were hoping... People would get back together get and back change together their minds. So they wouldn't be divorced because we're all against divorce because we're of the ethos of the time. Anyway, so they issued the divorce decree, but for a year, from 1922 to 1923, they were actually kind of still married, in quotes, because it wasn't till that year had passed that it was final, so during that year she toured the country as Mrs. Rudolph Valentino because she could still do it, God. because she was still technically married to him, in in a show called How She Won the Sheik. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: What a slap in the face! I
1: know. I know. Oh my God. So that that's that that's the at least they got the divorce. So what happens then after that is. Rudy's all on fire to marry his beloved Natasha and um, so what he did and this is you know it sounds really stupid at first until you look into it and then you you begin to get that get what get what what happened was in this situation Rudy consulted like a couple of other friends they, they both did other friends who had done this as well and they and they talked to a lawyer too saying, even though it it takes a year for a divorce to be final in California, if you go to Mexico, that law doesn't apply there. So you can get married. And because of uh, the United States, I guess, acknowledges marriages made in Mexico, then you can kind of circumvent that and you can get married before the year is out. And it's it's lawful and it's fine. So, and other people have done this and had no problem. But because it's Rudy, he's always going to step in it. So they went down to Mexico, really, really excited, and they did a whole uh, beautiful ceremony. They had a great time. It was interesting, um, like Nazimova went to the wedding. You know, they had a bunch of people there. June Mathis, she was friends with uh, uh, Rambova now too, and they had a wedding, and then they had the wedding night, and as they were driving back up to California, well, actually, they came back to, to California, I'm sorry, and while, after they'd come back, the uh, uh, Los Angeles Police Department arrested him and charged him with bigamy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so unlucky. <laughs> and and uh, this reminds me a little bit of the Errol Flynn, if you go back to our Errol Flynn episode, where it's sort of like, why usually this doesn't happen? I mean, you know, whatever Flynn did, I'm not trying to judge whether it was right or wrong, but the purpose of the prosecution and the way it was done and the notoriety of it, was very was very unusual. And the reason it was unusual is because it was political. And this was the same case with Rudy. It was very, very political, where uh, essentially, this was right at the time when uh, the Virginia Rappé Fatty Arbuckle scandal happened. And that's the one, we've mentioned this before, where Virginia Rappé was raped at a party of Fatty Arbuckles. And maybe, and actually, it was a Asserted, alleged that it was Fatty Arbuckle who raped her. And she was injured so badly that three days later she died of peritonitis. A lot of people died peritonitis at this time. That's horrible. Terrible. Uh, Wallace Reed, he was a very, very popular actor uh, who died of a drug overdose. And then there was William Desmond Taylor, who was a director, who was murdered in his house. Wow. And there were a whole bunch of like scandals about these various women who were part of his life and so forth. And so, in other words, there was all of these scandals. And, and there were all of Taylor, who was Mary Pickford's sister-in-law, who died of a drug overdose. What, or was it a suicide? Was it a murder? You know, all of these terrible um, uh, scandals were happening. So th- this happened right at the time. So it's believed that they really prosecuted Rudy to the last letter of the law to show, hey, we don't let these Hollywood types get away with it. And also probably because he was dark. Because mm-hmm. he had this foreignness, this otherness. And so it would be another way to sort of, you know...
0: Enforce the status quo, I guess. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Or yeah. Even,
1: even if it was even unconscious, going, okay, this is the, not the blonde, blue-eyed guy, but this guy, yeah. you know, we're going to get him. So he, and, uh, and he'd just become a big star and, and got on the map. So basically, they threw him in jail and it was really, really terrible because, and the DA was up for re election, by the way, right? At this oh, time. that's FY, why. <laughs> FYI. That's why. Well, well, but why would he choose this? Mm. You know? But anyway, and he spent two days in jail, which was just absolutely horrible. Uh, it, was, it was not in a Mexican jail, which I think is what they show in the movie in Ken uh, Russell. In Ken yeah. Russell. But anyway, it was still terrible. And, uh, and he uh, contacted the studio, and they, they made a $10,000 bail for him. Wow. Which crazy for bigamy yeah for bigamy and anyway so uh they uh the the studio just they didn't and that's what studios were supposed to do the at this time studios managed these kinds of things for stars they supported them they, they did not, not always to the uh, to the good but they did do it and so uh, they they just sat on their hands because they're just jerks and so uh june mathis george melford And some other actor, I forget who it was, who didn't even know Rudy, they all got together and they scraped and they called people and they scraped together the money to get him out of jail.
0: That's really sweet.
1: It was very sweet. They really, really fought to get him out. But apparently in the the, the, uh, jail, Rudy was just, he was like distraught. So Rudy is sobbing. He's apparently grasping the cell bars, (laughs) shouting. I rot here before I deny our sacred marriage.
0: She's my wife. my wife. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> our little dramatic Aww. boy. <laughs> poor guy. He'd do everything for
1: love. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh poor guy. So essentially then he did get out but had to go to trial. They had had a whole fucking trial for two weeks. Wow, on this thing. And it was just it was, it was a sensation. I mean women just poured in and uh, in particular and of course he was lampooned by in the mail but you know apparently before the trial he was in a room I don't it's weird how they did things back in those days in a room with reporters And so he pulls out his flask and he passes it around. And of course, this is during Prohibition. So the poor went. He's kind of a good guy. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Um, So uh, the court reporter said it was like a gangster funeral with armed guards to keep the flappers from literally crushing Rudy to death. (laughs) And um, apparently they. you know, they all wanted to just hear what he had to say. It must have been pretty amazing, actually. I probably would have crushed him yeah, there if totally. I could have gotten him, too. So they put him on the stand, and and he he said very contritely during his, his testimony, I loved deeply, but in loving I may have erred.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Aww. Aww. So the only way to get him off from the bigamy charge was to proof that the marriage was actually not consummated
0: god can i just stop here and I say know. it's so weird I these know. like these legalistic rules that are basically just middle schoolers being like well did you put it in or not <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know exactly. like why do people give a shit and i mean the ultimate answer is that the status quo in terms of like marriage and family yeah. oh, needs yeah. to be reinforced to produce workers for the <laughs> capitalist <laughs> enterprise but
1: <laughs> well and well it's, it's also because the 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 male needs to know that this that this progeny is his line right. from his genetics. Good point for his ownership. I mean, well, of yeah. course, anything that comes out of your wife in those days was belonged to you. Right, you were the owner thereof. But yeah, uh, okay. I'm sorry. Our radical politics are coming yeah. out here. Sorry, anyway. guys. Anyway, uh, so essentially, now they had been living together and sleeping together. So essentially, they had to bring on all these witnesses to get this. And so their story was. They got married, they had the party, but Natasha felt ill. And she went to bed. And, you know, because she was feeling ill, he slept on the couch out on the porch. Sure. <laughs> so, but it was the only way to get him off. Yeah. And so they brought in, like, witnesses, like, from the party. And then they had this guy come in who was, like, a a native person from Mexico. And said, oh, yeah, I was riding by on my donkey. <laughs> and I saw him out there and... Uh, you know he was sitting there and uh, in his silk pajamas In his silk pajamas, and uh, uh, apparently, I forget I, I don't know what all the I didn't read all the testimony, but essentially somebody says, "Oh, he was wearing purple pajamas and 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 Rudy gets all this and says, oh no, it was it was a white silk Chinese lounging robe I was wearing." <laughs> And so they had to bring the articles into court as, 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 as uh, pieces
0: of evidence, as, pieces
1: of evidence so as exhibits to this trial to show off the purple pajamas and the lounging robe. I think the, the, per, the purpose of that was trying to thread the needle here that, well, if he'd been wearing pajamas, it could have indicated that, he had been, that he'd been sleeping right. in a bed. Whereas if he's wearing a lounging or lounging robes, were like hanging out at the having breakfast, walking around. I mean, that was kind of like even though it wasn't something like for public wear, it was sort of the outer wear of the house, right? Right. But PJs were like when you're going to be in bed, right? That's that's my guess. So anyway, the judge dismissed the case, and basically, as dicta from the bench said, this law should be changed.
0: Wow, it's stupid.
1: (laughs) Awesome. And so, uh, basically, Jean um, uh, Ackers was um, approached and asked if she was going to sue him for bigamy, like on a civil suit to get money. She's already got alimony, right? Right. But to get money out of him, which would have been stupid because he'd been let off. Right. So there was no way she could prove it anyway. But she said she wasn't going to, and I think that's only because she knew she couldn't win. But Rudy was touched. Because he's got such a sweetheart. And he calls her up and he thanks her. God. And she says, that's fine, but I just want to let you know I'm going to be making six pictures this year as Mrs. Valentino. (laughs) (laughs) Before the year runs out. (laughs) Before the year runs out and I can't use the name anymore. (laughs) So funny. So basically what happened with uh, Rudy and Natasha is uh, they had to separate. So there could not be any evidence that they were sleeping together. I mean, much less living together. Right. But sleeping together. So they had to go several ways. So they were in New York at the same time for a while but had different apartments in different buildings and apparently who knows maybe they kind of snuck in with each other i mean it's I'm sure hard they did it's hard to believe that rudy could, with, could withstand his passion yeah you know and um, but they had to be really really cautious and, and only be seen in public together like if they were with other people and in a restaurant or something right. and then natasha went to the adirondacks to her parents uh they had a compound there her her stepfather was very rich i'll get more into natasha next episode i'm going to start out with a little bit of a, about natasha's life which is again very interesting very interesting and she uh, uh basically she had to go down they didn't have a telephone remember this is the 1920s they didn't have a telephone there so she had to go down to the train station to call or or she could telegraph him or she could write him letters, too. But, you know, it was that immediacy. Right. So she, she, she'd sometimes go down twice a day to call him. And, of course, people... This had all been in the newspapers. Right. All over. So people were, like, hanging around the train station. Listening. Waiting, trying to listen in and stuff. And uh, apparently um, she would call him and, and they, like, would talk, baby talk to each other. They called each other babykins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my little baby. <laughs> <laughs> stuff that it really is best just kept between the two people yeah you know? <laughs> they, you know, they did all that kind of like nicknamey babykin stuff it so it's just so funny to think yeah, about totally. it and uh, you know during this period while he's waiting he says to the press real love is not only beautiful it is idyllic sowing the seeds for its own destruction <laughs> if you will in, in his life and so they wrote a bunch of letters, and the stepfather, the, step-parent, the parent, her mother and her stepfather, both really liked Rudy. They really thought he was a great guy, a good person, and the father publicly supported him as a his character and gave him a character reference and everything. Nice. So I thought that was really nice. Uh, Rudy called him Uncle Dickie, and he called her mother Muzzy, which is what Natasha called her. Cute. I know. He, he got along great with her mother. And so eventually, finally, they were able to meet again and be together, but... It wasn't really the end of the year; they couldn't get married quite yet. But he went to Adirondacks. But since the mother and father were there, they were chaperoning. It was supposed to be okay, so he goes to see her, and they're they're hanging out, and they had adjoining bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Wank wank, and uh, but it, but the the press just wouldn't leave him alone. So uh, the press were like infiltrating the compound and they're they're dogs and stuff and guard dogs and and, you know trying to get pictures or trying to get a story or whatever and rudy just like when this one guy was caught he ran and got a shotgun and he was like running after the guy with a shotgun and natasha's screaming after him don't do it you may be killed or disfigured
0: remember you belong to the screen The public! (laughs) That's so funny. People really used to talk like that. (laughs) I know!
1: These are quotes I'm giving you. Anyway, uh, next episode, we will go back. We'll cover uh, a couple of the movies that he did at this time. And then we'll move forward into his period with he and Natasha creating films together. Oh, I'll also tell you a little bit about her background as well.
0: All right, everybody. Have a great weekend or week.
1: Yes, definitely. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com.
0: We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.